You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lelada G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie May May and Lakeisha's uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. We have to wonder why our rugs are so lumpy, right? Correct, right. We swept so many things underneath there. At some point, it becomes a stumbling block because you can't even walk across the floor without tripping over all the things that we swept under the rug. How do I tell it? I need to get it out. I can't continue to go on like this anymore. You know, if I can help just one person, then I want to share my story. I used to be very, very ashamed. Yeah. And now it's like, you know what? I can't be ashamed because it's made me the woman I am today. When we hold the secret of what our abuser or abusers have done, it keeps us locked in darkness with that person. Yes, gives them power. Yes, there's no one else. It's just you and that person and what happened. And there's no light that comes in. Just coming from someone else who didn't know me from, from anybody. They just said, it's not your fault. And I felt that. So anybody who's listening, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Hello, this is Malayda G, your host of Defending Black Girlhood podcast. Welcome you to another episode. This whole season, we're going to be having a variety of conversations with Black women, listening to their story, listening to elements of their Black girlhood, elements of parenting Black girls. And what I'm hoping is that as these women tell their story, that you will find yourself somewhere in their story, that you will find the courage to tell your story. And it doesn't have to be on a microphone. It can be to a loved one, to your sister, to a friend. But there is so much power in telling story. And today I'm joined with Megan Brown, who is courageously coming on to share her story. Megan, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? Doing good. Good, good. So my first question for you is, what is one word you would use to define your Black girlhood? I would have to say invisible. And why would you use that word? Um, in the beginning, when I just, no one would listen. Um, it was swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. I think that's fairly common. Yes, unfortunately. Yes, and... 
um, I didn't have a voice. You know, I was young when it initially happened. And then it was, I don't think it was that people didn't believe me. It was just that in the early 70s, you know, we don't want anything tainting your family. And mm-hmm. so you just, like I said, just sweep it under the rug, um, hope and pray that it goes away. Uh, when in fact, that's the worst thing that you could do. Absolutely, absolutely. And after a while, we have to wonder why our rugs are so lumpy, right? Correct, right. We, we swept so many things underneath there. At some point, it becomes a stumbling block because you can't even walk across the floor without tripping over all the things that we swept under the rug. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Right? And and what we meant to do was to make it go away, but what we've actually done is create a whole new set of problems. Correct. Yeah. So you reached out to me recently, and you had reached out to me before. What do you feel is compelling you at this time in your life to tell your story? Well, I've known you for a while, and I always admire your strength and your courage. And thank you. Yeah. And at some point I was tired of hiding mm-hmm. and I believe I have a story that can help somebody else. And I've been trying to find a way to do it. You know, I kind of started writing and just different avenues of trying to figure out how do I tell it? I need to get it out. I can't continue to go on like this anymore you know, if I can help just one person, then I want to share my story. I used to be very, very ashamed. Yeah. And now it's like, you know what? I can't be ashamed because it's made me the woman I am today. Yeah. And, I, and I'm very proud of who I am now. So that was the biggest reason. I just, I needed to tell someone. I needed someone to listen. Yeah. And knowing your story and knowing you, it just kind of gave me like the the platform and I appreciate that. Absolutely. And then when you were saying your response just then, it made me think about like what's the cost of secrecy? You know, we think that secrecy protects us, that it is our friend in some ways, but what do you feel like the cost of secrecy has been upon your life? It was crippling. It was I didn't have a life. I I don't want to say I define myself as to what happened, mm-hmm. but it was always in the forefront of my mind that this is who I am. Yes. And it really, really wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't move forward. I still lived in that. Or I had just had this self, no self-worth, no self-confidence, no nothing. Um, and I exuded love to everybody else, but I didn't exude it for myself. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we give out what we want to receive. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and we're hoping that people get the message, people understand. But I think when we hold the secret of what our abuser or abusers have done, it keeps us locked in darkness with that person. Yes, gives them power. Yes, there's no one else. It's just you and that person and what happened. And there's no light that comes in. And 
I think when we begin to share our story as little or as much as we feel comfortable with, then it begins to give an opportunity for light to come in because when when we're in that darkness, we tell ourselves all kinds of lies mm-hmm. about who we are, about what we can do, about what our life will be. Correct. When you were in that spot of just being consumed by your secrets, what are some of the lies you told yourself? I'm not worthy. Nobody wants me. You know, I always thought <laughs> because it happened a couple of times, you know, is it on my forehead? What 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 am I giving out that these men pick up on that? that it's okay to do this to me. Mm-hmm. And then I started believing that, you know, that's all I was worth. You know, sex was, that's what I do. That's what I did. And and, and that went through probably till my mid twenties, you know, so. And, you know, I think you are actually right. So when you think about empathy, people who are very empathic, who can feel people's energy, who can know someone's story without having spoken with them, and people who use that in a positive way, in a ministry way, in a therapeutic way, in a healing way. I think pedophiles and abusers have that same ability and they use it to find the feel, the weakness, to see the spaces where they can slither in like a snake. So I think in some ways, yeah, there is something about you. And instead of being the healer, they're the exploiter. Right, right. So what are some of the elements that kept you silent? We know shame is there. Have you had to consider how the telling of your story would impact someone else besides the abuser? My family, the abuser's family, just the community where I grew up in is just was so small that and being the only Black girl, I felt that I had to have this image and I I learned to wear a mask (laughs) very, very well. And just recently it's probably when I completely freed myself from that. It was always to protect the abuser, which is absolutely asinine. I think a lot of people understand that. Who did you tell first? Um, I first told my mom the first time I was abused probably just 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And her response, and it happened to be Easter, but her response was, well, I didn't know that was happening. It wasn't doubt, but she was just kind of, I think she was taken aback. And, you know, she said, well, if your father were alive and he knew about that, then, you know, the, the situation, the consequences would have been different. But she, she kind of made a joke of it. She's like, well, I hope he's not at church this evening. Wow. Yeah. And I don't think she meant to, to hurt me. I think that was just her way of dealing with the situation. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we didn't really talk about it again. Still to this day, you haven't spoken with your mom about it again? Um, the other abuse, yes. Okay. Yeah, but the, the first time I was ever abused, I was like five or six. Mm-hmm by a neighbor boy and <laughs> I mean you know not that I hindsight obviously but he I know he was abusing his sister you know I look at her now and she's a mess uh-huh. with this particular person um 
like I said, when I was five or six, I was down at the neighbor's house because I hung out with his sister. The neighborhood was kind of close. I was the youngest at the time. And I remember him, <laughs> him coming upstairs and his sister and I were in her room and he told us to come in the room and he wanted us to perform oral sex on him. And, you know, he's like, well, it tastes like orange juice. And wow. Yeah. Me not knowing. And I saw his sister do it. So I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, you're five or six, you, you're a baby. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. I, I think I might've been six or seven mm-hmm. enough to know. I mean, not to know, but to remember. Yeah. And then we just went about the day. I mean, I didn't really realize I was what it was until I was older. Mm-hmm. How much older than you was he? I think five years older, five or six years older. Mm-hmm. He was probably eighth or ninth grade. Okay. Yeah. I didn't think to tell anybody because I didn't think there was it was wrong. I didn't I didn't know. Right. You know. Right. So that was the first time Mm -hmm. and then some years went on and my dad died when I was eight and uh let's kind of go back (laughs) because this this fills in my my story I was adopted by a white couple at six days old and I was raised in Baraboo and the fact that I was adopted into a kind of an influential family I don't think that I was exposed to the blatant racism that we see today. Uh, My dad was a professor. My mom was a teacher. You know, she taught practically every child in Baraboo. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that kind of gave me a pass, so to speak. Yeah. So then I had a great childhood that I can remember. My dad, like I said, my dad died when I was eight and my world was turned upside down. Mm -hmm. You know, being adopted not knowing who your biological parents are, you know, that in itself is, you know, traumatic. Right. Then losing your dad at the only dad you ever knew at eight years old is pretty traumatic too. As the years went on, you hear this a lot. I was looking for love from a man. Mm-hmm. And my mom was in the hospital and I was staying with my aunt and her family and it was in the winter, and my cousin wanted me to go ice skating with her. And she's like, I want you to meet this boy. He's really, really cute. And she had a crush on him. Mm-hmm. And I went with her, and I guess he was cute for, I mean, I was 12. Mm-hmm. And he was an older boy and everything. Well, to make a long story short, he showed interest in me. And I thought that was the best thing that never happened to me, you know? And then he started grooming me and I had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't like boys. I was really into sports. Guys had cooties. (laughs) Um, And and then, you know, this older guy like shows interest in me and it was flattering, you know? And slowly but surely, he would start touching me. The first time he touched my breasts, I was bawling. I didn't, you know, crying. I was scared. Then then it grew. Then it was something else, oral sex. Uh, And then um, eventually we had 
sex. And of course, I mean, I guess I could say it was consensual, but at 12 years old, what, what do I know? How can I right. consent to, to, to it? And then he continued, he would like climb in my window at night and it was like he raped me over and over and over and over again. And my mom found out about us dating. Um, and he was like five or six years older than me. Um, he was eight, I think he was 18. And I was 12. And that's sick now that I think about it. Or every time I think about it. Very significant. And um, she invited his, his mom and dad over to talk about the situation. Mm-hmm. And she claims she didn't know to what extent things were happening. I just think she chose not to believe it. Mm-hmm. She said, we need to keep them apart. You know, there was no mention of the police, nothing. Mm-hmm. It was just, we need to keep them apart. And well, how did she find out that you two were dating or as she- <laughs> Very loosely what? dating. Um, I, I don't remember. I, I don't remember. Oh, everybody knew my family. And we were in an alley or something, and he was feeling me up and kissing me. And this lady saw me, and and she called my mom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when your family got together and you had this meeting, did you feel that in that setting you could have a voice? Did you say anything? Did they ask you anything? No, she pretty much spoke for me, and he denied everything. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, she's too young, you know, saying some really insensitive stuff. And here I am sitting there thinking, oh, my God, you told me you loved me. You know, you tell me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I know I was shouting and screaming, but I don't remember what I was saying. Yeah. I was just really, really hurt that 15 minutes ago, you told me that you loved me. How can you say this stuff? And mm-hmm. I think that was more devastating to me than at the time, what my mom, what steps my mom could have taken and she didn't. Right. So I think in the moment, that hurt me more than anything. Mm -hmm. So why do you think your mother didn't either take more drastic steps or even ask you more detailed questions? I don't think she wanted to know the answers. Mm -hmm. And like I said, in the 80s, that's stuff you don't talk about mm-hmm. in white or black families. That's just something you don't talk about. Mm-hmm. She was afraid if it got out, it would ruin. And by no means is my mom a horrible person, but she said that something to the effect that if it got out and the community found out about it, it would hurt her preschool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which is... <sighs> You know, there's a couple layers to that, right? One is why would you being abused by this young man? I mean, he's 18, 19. He's an adult. Why would that have a negative impact on her work, on her profession? I think she felt that I was a reflection of her. I don't know. I've never Mm -hmm. asked her. Mm -hmm. But I think that that probably could have been part of it. Okay, that makes more sense there. Mm-hmm. Other other children. Mm-hmm. 
So what happens? You all have this family meeting. He denies it. What happens after that? Is that a done deal with this guy? Um, we probably continued because after that, obviously, you know, I love you. I couldn't tell, you know, whatever he had to mm-hmm. tell me. But then I remember walking home from school and the older girl that lived around the corner, she and him were walking hand in hand to her house. Mm. And that crushed me. Mm-hmm. It broke my heart. Mm-hmm. And then I don't remember what happened after all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just lived my life and threw myself into sports and never thought about it again, actually, you know? Mm-hmm. Just kind of stuffed it down, stuffed it away, yeah. did other stuff. Yeah. And so how do you feel, like, at the top of the conversation, you were saying how you feel like you had, like, the scarlet letter A on your head, you know? Like, how do you feel, like, those early sexual experiences around 5, 6, and 12, how did they begin to shape your young adulthood and relationships as a young woman? Um, Like I said, I didn't really date in high school. I was more involved in my sports than anything. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't attracted to, (laughs) I wasn't attracted to white boys. And I don't know if that was because that he was white Mm -hmm. or if I was just growing up and realizing, you know, Wow, look at these brothers. <laughs> you know, I so I was no obviously no longer a virgin at twelve. As I started to travel for sports, I started seeing a lot more young black men or boys, I should say. Mm-hmm. And somehow I learned to be very flirtatious and very. I had game, <laughs> you know. I had. I knew the right things to say, and probably about I was sixteen, seventeen, down in Madison for a track meet. Met a guy, met a boy, and I used my my game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ended up coming down to Madison within a couple of days and skipping school and having sex with him. And I think when I went to college too, I got a lot more attention. Than I did in Baraboo because guys' parents wouldn't allow them to date me or I just wasn't attracted to them. But when I got to college, I got a lot more attention mm-hmm. from young black men. And then that kind of just set me off. That's how I defined myself. I slept with a lot of guys in high school or in, in college because that, that's all I thought they wanted. That's And then that's all I thought I was worth. Mm-hmm. It got bad. They got really, really bad. Um, I wasn't going to classes. I was drinking a lot. And my mom finally said, you know, enough, enough. You need to do something with your life. And I enlisted in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And it didn't change anything. It just changed my environment. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up getting game raped in the military. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, which, <laughs> it, it would put another layer on everything else. Right, right. You know, so. You know, and I I appreciate your candor in telling your story because I think it's important for 
listeners, other women who have been through a similar situation to understand their sexual journey. You know, because I think a lot of us have found ourselves one way or another in trying to figure it out, trying to figure out who we are, trying to figure out what our worth is, trying to figure out the meaning of sex in our lives. And it's led to a variety of experiences. And over the years, I've done a lot of work with women who are survivors. And I don't know that I've met one woman who was raped as an adult, who wasn't sexually abused as a girl. Mm -hmm. And so that scenario can tell you a lot of stories that you end up telling yourself over and over. I deserve this. It's my fault. Da, 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 da. But I think it's important to understand that those things go hand in hand for a reason. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are out there listening who may have a similar experience, it's important to understand that the early introduction of sex really sets us up and how we continue on in our life and our journey around sex. And it makes us vulnerable and it makes us shameful and it makes us often try to use the same thing that broke us to fix yeah. thinking the next, the next, the next. Okay, now this is gonna be the one. Right. It's gonna heal it all. Yeah. So, and you keep thinking the next one is going to be the right one. Yeah. And where we have been broken isn't where we heal. No. So you're in the military, you have this god awful experience of being gang raped. What did you do? Who did you tell? What was their response? Um, I didn't tell anyone. It was at a basketball tournament. I played for our base in Oklahoma City. I happened to be married at the time. Um, the morning after it happened, I had a, I was supposed to have a game that morning, and I just got in my car and drove back to Oklahoma from Louisiana. Megan, start that sentence again. You called for a minute. You said you were supposed to have a game that morning, and what happened? I got in my car and drove back from Louisiana back to the base in Oklahoma City. Wow. The men that raped me were guys on the base basketball team. So we were friends. We traveled together a lot, and they just took advantage. I, I was drunk the night before. We had a um, meet and greet with the other teams, and I had asked one of the guys just to walk me back to my room because I didn't want to walk by myself because I could barely walk. I was told that, and I kind of remember that. And then um, I blacked out, and then I woke up, and it was so many things were happening and I was very confused and but the next morning I was nauseous sick to my stomach um I was in pain I hurt um and I just couldn't face anybody so I left got back to my house and lived my life I was doing some very destructive behavior I ended up getting divorced uh I left Oklahoma City and came back to Wisconsin and again the change in environment didn't change anything. I was very, very promiscuous, not proud at all, but I didn't know any other way. I, I, I was still getting attention from all these peak guys and thinking, well, it's, it can't be half that, that bad, you know, they all want to be with me, um, but that's all it was. I just wanted sex. And like I said, I, I keep on replaying stuff in my head. Did, did I make this happen? Did I 
you know, was flirting too hard? Did I say something wrong? You know, thinking about my clothes. Did I have, was I wearing something too sexy or just really crazy things. And then throughout my adulthood, horrible relationships, uh, abusive relationships. It wasn't until 2012, so eight years ago, that someone finally told me that it wasn't my fault. And that's the day I began to heal and take part of my life back. What helped you to believe that? Because for a long time, for years, you're telling yourself it's your fault, it's divorce, it's said, it's what you did. So what helped you that day when they said it wasn't your fault? What helped you to believe that? Just hearing someone tell me those words. Mm-hmm. And I was in counseling through the VA and it never was diagnosed, but I think I had a nervous breakdown. And I was very anxious. I couldn't leave my bed. My kids had to be next to me. It was really bizarre. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I got into counseling, kind of told them what was going on. And it was a ju- and it was a man that told me. He looked at me and he said, Megan, it's not your fault. And I actually believed him. Mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was just timing or time to process some of the stuff, but it was the most profound thing anyone ever told me. And that was the first time anyone told me, Megan, it's not your fault. Yeah. So ever since then, it's been an uphill battle. You know, I'm still healing, mm-hmm. but I know it wasn't my fault. Yeah. Just those simple words were it was life changing. There might be someone listening right now who is full of shame and full of blame for the situation they found themselves in in life. And I think someone may not tell them, but you may have to tell yourself it wasn't my fault. You may have to tell yourself because it's important to understand that no matter what you said, no matter what you did, no matter what you wore, the decision to assault you is separate from that. Because there is one type of man who could see a vulnerable woman walking down the street butt naked and he would take off his coat and cover her mm-hmm. and protect her. There's another man that would see that as an opportunity and he would take advantage of that. So it has nothing to do with what you wore, what you said, what you did. It has everything to do with the choice and decisions of that person right. to use you, to take advantage of you, because it's a choice on their part. Right. You know, it's a choice on their part. No, I think, though, even though if you're going to tell yourself that or try to tell yourself that it's not your fault and it continues to happen, mm-hmm. it's very hard to to believe. Mm-hmm. But just coming from someone else who didn't know me from from anybody, they just said it's not your fault. And I felt that. So anybody who's listening, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Just that one day was a real changing point in my life. And so what, what shifted? Because you talked about how, you know, you moved from Baraboo, you went to college, you went to the military, you came back, and everything ended up being the same. The only thing that had changed was the geography. Yep. So what changes in your life after you hear it's not your fault, you receive it, you believe it, then what changes? 
I started to love myself. I started to believe in myself. Mm -hmm. I was raising my kids. My son was a senior when I, they said it was not my fault. You know, I had gotten him through high school. You know, I was just looking at all the positive things that I had done, regardless of what I had been through. And that was pretty powerful. Even though I was living in the dark, it was bad times. I still found a way to love and support my kids. And that was a great accomplishment for me. So the parallel of someone telling me it's not my fault and then, uh, then seeing my son walk across the stage, you know, a couple months later was, I was like, okay, if I could do this through what I have been through, the sky's the limit. But it, I still doubt myself sometimes in choices, but I don't allow it to define me anymore. And I got into that because, you know, it kept on happening. Like, so this, this must be my life. This is, this must be my purpose. But then I started to look at the great things I did aside from what had been done to me. Yes. Yes. And so you have a son, how many children do you have? Two. I have a son, he's 27. And then I have a daughter who just turned 18. How do you feel your experiences through you as a parent impacted your children? My son was much different than my daughter. My son, although we kind of grew up together, I had him at 21, but I mean, he was my road dog. He went everywhere with me. And uh, after his father and I divorced and it was different raising a boy. Mm -hmm. Raising my daughter when my daughter got to be about 12 or 13 and developing I was horrible overprotective total helicopter mom and I still am I still am you know I know we weren't going to talk about this but I'm going to touch on it a little bit when something like this happens to you the first thing you want to do is protect your children you don't ever want your children to go through that whatsoever and unfortunately I had to deal with it with my daughter and it happened in school. And that's the one place where you think that you don't, you know, you don't really have to worry about your kids. And you should have to worry about your children at school. Right. Correct. Correct. And um, it was devastating. I was, it was devastating. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, ah, here we go again. What did I teach her? I started taking, trying to take responsibility for it because I wasn't there to protect her kind of able to share that experience with her. I knew how she was feeling. I, I thought I knew what she needed. So I think in that respect, I was helpful to her. But I'm still, I still, <laughs> she's 18 and I still want to know where she's going, what she's doing, who she's with, when she's going to be back. Mm -hmm. Because I want to protect her, but also there's just some crazy people out here and with the sex trafficking and just everything, you can't be careful enough. And that's the truth. And that's the truth. And I think it's hard for us on some level, Not it's hard for us to not see ourselves through our daughters. Right. To not hope that our experiences 
don't happen to them, to hope right. they are bypassed by the things that we want to do. And to carry that fear and and hold your breath. Right. Hoping that that doesn't happen and then trying to pull yourself together if it does. Right. So you said it gave you another level of healing to be able to share your story with your daughter. Did you feel like it set you back at all or did it put you in mama mode to have to be stronger for her? Definitely mama mode. Mm -hmm. Definitely mama mode. I don't think it set me back at all. I think it gave me another purpose Mm -hmm. because the fight's not over. The fight's not over. And there's just, there's, there's so much work to be done. Not in just in her situation, but for any young girl's situation, there's just a lot of work to be done. And I think that my experiences and, and what I've been through is just another step to, to, to help these girls. So it's certain that means that there's a lot of work to be done. What are you thinking? I'm thinking we need the stigma um, of rape, of uh, sexual assaults. It needs to be a conversation in at everyone's kitchen table. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be other conversations such as, you know, I threw myself into sports. Um, other girls may, may do another outlet, but I know with sports, you know, you have to maintain a certain GPA to be eligible. And I think things, some things like that need to be adjusted so that the girl isn't punished again because of her GP for what has happened, which made her grades slip, you know, and then she loses her outlet. So I think, I just think there needs to be a lot more conversations. Um, I think there needs to be more training in schools. I think there needs to be Title IX with what happened with my daughter, which I know what Title IX was, but there was no mention of it to us. Um, I think educators need to be, I know we ask educators to do a lot. (laughs) I know we do, but this is just one more thing. And if it's not the teachers, then there needs to be, you know, more Title IX coordinators or, or more people that work in that aspect with students. I could go on and on. Yeah. And I think, I think. on the Title IX, how you think it could have been more helpful? Because a lot of people don't even know what Title IX is. It is, it's a law. It's supposed to help protect students of being sexually assaulted. You hear about it more in colleges uh, than you do in high school. But it's abused as rights. They're protected, which doesn't happen most of the time. I don't think I'm saying it right. But that's okay. But it, it's something that's in place. Yes. For protecting someone who's been a victim of assault. Correct. Because unbelievably, when young folks are abused in a you know high school level, college level, you would think that rescue support would come to the victim, but that doesn't always happen. Correct. And so this is kind of put in place to circumvent some of the ways that particularly colleges quite often have become notorious for sweeping sexual assaults under the rug. So where are you now in your journey? Where are you now in what you feel you want to do, you need to do for your own healing, for your own 
sense of call or work? I really, I always knew that counseling was something that I should be doing. So I thought about going back to school to get my master's to counsel. I'm almost 50 years old and I don't know if I want to do that, but I think there are other ways that I can help. Absolutely. Just by telling my story. Just by making myself available to other people in the community through sports, through just anything. Anytime I can have a conversation with a young woman Mm -hmm. and be able to help. And I do have that sense of, I know young girls that have been abused Mm -hmm. just for some reason. And I can- We become radars. Yes, yes. So I guess just to continue to be me, can continue to grow and heal and being able to relate and talk to other other girls. I do have some things in mind, but I don't want to speak it into existence. <laughs> but um, this is definitely my purpose. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that. Um, I'm putting in situations, you know, kind of that I have no control over and I end up telling my story and and helping someone. So I want to continue doing that. And like I said, I have some ideas that are brewing and yeah, hopefully we can do some more things together and I would love that. there's a lot more work to be done. There really is. And one thing I want to highlight again that you said was about how sports was that really important element for you mm-hmm. in order. And I think, you know, we all heal differently. And we need different things as we're healing. But I love the idea because therapy alone isn't it for most people. Right. So being able to find some type of outlet, whether it's sports or art, music, something creative, you know, outdoors, whatever it is, finding those things that help, you know, if you have a child that's been abused, finding those things that helps them get out of their mind. experience beauty, create beauty, see beauty, you know, that type of thing, be part of something, be part of a team, understanding part of their value through teamwork. All these things are really, really important. Very. And I love what you're saying about advocating for, for our young ones if they unfortunately find themselves in a situation that the response is, well, the book says that if they go below this grade, that they can't do this, like understanding yep. and making space and room and seeing it as a healing outlet for them. Yep. You know, I, I really appreciate you sharing your story, sharing your journey. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you do, seeing how Thank you continue to grow along your healing journey. And I'm looking forward to us finding ways that we can intersect. Because yeah. there's a lot that needs to be done. Yep. There's a lot that needs to be done in healing the Black girls within women, healing Black girls that have been through some things, and really helping to prevent some of that. Yep. Helping to prevent some of that. Is there anything else you want to share with us before we end the conversation today? No, because my son keeps on calling me, so I have to go. <laughs> All right. So we will end there, Megan. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you. you much. Thank you for sharing your story and blessings to you on your journey. Thank you very much. Okay, you take it. All right. Talk soon. That was a good conversation. 
And look, we mean this thing. We are not playing. We are committed to defending black girls. And look, we want you to get involved. Please visit Lalena.org to explore the work that we are doing to defend black girls to be safe wherever they are. And look, while you're there, please sign up for our mailing list so that you will not miss one single fearless conversation.